Well, we come back this morning to our study of the book of Titus, a short study that we are doing together in this book to just define what is the central focus of a local congregation. Personal character is an enlightening commentary on what we think. How we live highlights our priorities, our behavior is a reflection of our beliefs. I think we all know that those statements are true. There's a reality behind all of them. The behavior, the murderous behavior of terrorists flow from their belief system. Missionaries who leave the comforts of one culture to embrace the isolation in a foreign culture begin to show what they really think about the gospel and the power of the gospel. Our schedules and our bank accounts, they display our values. Our responses to the people that we encounter every day and the circumstances that surround us, they actually start telling everyone around us what we actually believe. What we think about God, what we believe about the Bible, what we think is valuable in life. In fact, if you want to know what this church here believes then it's not enough to just examine the doctrinal statement of our church, though you should. You should also examine the characteristics of the behavior of our congregation. Then you'll begin to know what we believe. So be sure, examine those written doctrinal statements. Make sure that you understand the theology of a congregation. That is important. I, I would... I would encourage you to spend a lot of time doing that. Spend months listening to, if you need to, what comes from the pulpit and from the classrooms and what the elders are saying. And at the same time, have your eyes open to how do the people of that congregation live with each other? What are they known for? What characterizes their behavior? How would you describe it? Because how we live reflects what we actually believe. The most important activity of a church is not really just what you're going to hear from the pulpit. That is very important. It's not just what you hear from the instrumentalists and the music. It's not merely what the programs of the church are looking like. What do the people look like? What are they like? How do they display that the gospel really is transforming their lives? That's the most important activity of a church. It's how she's helping her members cultivate a character that is consistent with the gospel. Now think about this. This is not new in the Bible. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and God created humanity in his, what? His image, meaning that the very purpose of humanity was to reflect the nature, the character of God. And if you pay careful attention to the New Testament, to something like Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, salvation is all about, as Colossians 3.10 says, putting on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So salvation is all about responding to the effect of sin in our life and causing us to once again image God as he created us to do. So that means that our character personally and our character corporately as a congregation 
is to be the reflection of the character of God. And how do you know what that looks like? Well, you look to the very perfect person, the perfect human being, and that is the person of Jesus. He displays, he reveals, explains God to us. And we're to mimic his character. We're to show his character. Our character, our words, our actions should be obviously linked to the gospel. More than they are things like the American dream or democratic idealism or common human camaraderie. Our tribe is not a people who share our musical tastes, entertainment choices, food preferences, political ideals, regional values, our family's uniquenesses, our stage of life, our social status, our marriage status, or whatever you want to put in the list. Our tribe is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that comprises a variety of all of those things. Among us would be a variety of musical tastes and entertainment choices and food preferences and political convictions. Yeah, even among Christians, there could be differences among them on political convictions, believe it or not. Regional values could be different. Not everyone's from Missouri here, and all the Texans said. Wow, there's more of you than I thought out there. There's a variety of stages of life here. There's different age groups among us. There's different social status here, but we're all a part of one group, the tribe that is really the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what governs us are not our differences, but the commonality of Christ and the gospel. So then we we need to get practical with that. What does then the character of God governed by the gospel actually look like among such a people who are so varied and different? Well, the answer to that is found in these 10 verses that were read for you in Titus 2. This is a description of the members of the church. You remember last week and the last few weeks we've talked about leadership in the church and how leaders in the church are driven by the gospel. They're centered on the gospel and that shows through their character, shows through their behavior. Well, now we turn and we start looking at the members of the church. Now, if you were one of those who said last week when you were hearing about the character of leaders, you were thinking, thank the Lord that I am not a leader. I am so glad I don't have to live up to that kind of standard and scrutiny. Welcome to chapter two. (laughs) In fact, when you come to chapter two, it, it sounds a lot like chapter one, doesn't it? Because the standard that leaders are called to exemplify is not a different standard than we are called to live by. It's the same. It really is the same. Because the gospel produces thus, this in us. So here we begin looking at the character of the members of the church. What kind of character should, should we find in the variety of people who comprise a local church? Or we could say, what does the image of God through the gospel look like specifically among the people of God? That's what these 10 verses are all about. Now, these verses are arranged into three groups of church members whose character should fit with the gospel. Three groups of church members whose character should fit with the gospel in order to display the image of God, to show the centrality of the gospel. Look at verse 1 just for a moment. But as for you, Paul speaking to Titus, his ministry protege, as for you, Titus, 
speak the things. Now remember, he left, Paul left Titus on the small island of Crete to finish what was lacking, what remained as they preached the gospel. Paul, some, for some reason, was sent away. Titus was left there. Not only was he to install elders in the church, but he's also to speak the things which are fitting This is so important. The things that are fitting for sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Healthy beliefs, healthy instruction. It's simply a synonym for what we refer to as the gospel. The gospel is simply another way to describe God's word, the scriptures. Speak the things that fit with sound doctrine. So you say you believe these things about Christ and the gospel, so then speak the things to the church members that would cause them to fit with what they believe. That is a daunting task. You are to have a certain kind of lifestyle that reflects well on the gospel. Now you're going to see this throughout the chapter as he addresses various groups. They are to choose to live a certain way because of how it will look on the gospel. For example, chapter 2, verse 5, young women choose to live in a certain way that's described there, quote, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Or chapter 2, verse 8, young men choose to live in a particular way so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. What opponent? Opponents of the gospel. Opponents of the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 10. Slaves choose to a definite kind of lifestyle so that their masters will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You live in such a way that causes people to see what you believe and cherish it. Character shows what we believe. And our character should fit with the gospel convictions we say that we have. Even at the end of this chapter that we'll look at more next Lord's Day, in verses 11 through 14, Paul will even give the motivation behind why you live this way, and it's all about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the gospel is drives the way you live. So what are the three groups that are here? Well, just to outline them quickly, you you probably heard them as you're going through. There's Older members described in verses 2 through 4. There are younger members described in verses 4 through 8. And there are what I'll call working members in verses 9 through 10, referred to as slaves, a subset in society made up of all age groups, which I think the tangible expression today is the workplace. So, but be careful, don't run to your employer and say, thanks for treating me like a slave. But I think the, the the connection that we can make in our own current culture is the the world of our employment. Now, before we consider each of these groups and before I tell you which group you fit in, you're all wondering, am I an older person? Am I not an older person? We get this all the time. We invite people to the senior luncheon who meet a certain age group and we get responses of, that isn't me. Okay. But Titus does address these different groups. But before we get to them, I want you to notice what all of these groups say collectively about the congregation's social makeup and their interaction with each other around the gospel. Let's not take for granted here that this 
chapter describes a church that has various age groups. Don't always assume that. I mean, we are in a day and age where we create churches around affinity. We have churches according to your preferences. We have churches according to uh, your musical tastes or your age group. That doesn't seem to be the way the Bible describes a local congregation. It's a variety of people all meeting together. And I just want to go on record to say, yes, that does make ministry at times more difficult. Because when you have a lot of people with a lot of differences trying to help them see one another in the same way, it is challenging, isn't it? But nonetheless, we're here highlighting not what is just merely common among us in terms of our social standing or preferences. What is common among us as a church is our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that impacts life. So I do recognize that in the world today, the tech world, the business corporations, the media, all the politicians, they invest billions of dollars in knowing the demographic differences of every one of us. They even exploit those demographic differences among us to try to create political wedges or ways to make money according to our differences. That is the way our world works. They know I listened to one political pundit say, we we know not only your name and your address, we, we know what's in your refrigerator. We know what you like and what you don't like. We know even among your likes and dislikes what brand you like and dislike. Because they're they're searching everything about you. They're following everything about you. And exploit those differences. And yet here we come into the church and we're to be a mix of all those differences yet unified. The gospel doesn't show its effectiveness through dividing us according to our different social preferential distinctions. The gospel is effective where there is social interaction among all of those differences toward a central aim and that is producing a character that looks like the image of God, the person of Christ. We could divide ourselves from each other based on all the educational choices we make and that tends to happen in churches often wellness philosophies parenting ideas financial similarities entertainment choices your age your gender your conveniences your griefs your marital status theological particularities any other numerous personally held convictions and preferences And you might actually find some affinity with people who share some of those likes and dislikes and you get together regularly and socialize over them. But can I just say at this point, none of those, even if you feel them convictionally, but they're biblically preferential, none of those define your identity. If you find your identity in some preferential issue, you define yourself and your identity, then you are minimizing your identity in the gospel. Anything else other than the gospel and the word of God that defines your identity is minimizing the gospel. And that will create a greater disunity among us than anything. If our unity is really around the person of Christ. So Before we look at all those details, let's just get our mind around the fact that we are different and those differences 
Yes, they're evident among us, but what are we pursuing together that helps the world see that we actually display who we were created to display, and that is the nature of God. I think our passage envisions an intentional interaction that develops a particular character that's defined only by the gospel. I get it. If you were to drop in on conversations between older adults, you may hear them discussing the joys of spoiling grandkids and all the nuances of Medicare. You drop in on a middle-aged adult conversation, you'll likely hear them stressing about all the insane schedules and keeping up with all the kids and providing for their aging parents. If you were to drop in on a conversation between teenagers, you would likely hear nothing, (laughs) right? They're just staring at their phones. But our passage calls us to consider how we could display the character of Christ as we interact with each other, as we intermingle with one another, as we intentionally allow our lives to cross one another and intersect with each other. And so by emphasizing each of these groups, the Bible acknowledges there is distinctiveness. And in describing each of these groups, the Bible discusses how they interrelate with each other. And I want you to see that this morning. What do these verses emphasize in these three categories of church members and how their life fits with the gospel and displays the image of God? Well, let's look first at older members. I would simply say here that older members, if you wanted to summarize it, older members display a gospel-centered dignity. If you wanted a term to describe older members, think of the word dignity, but it's a gospel-centered dignity. It's found in the first four verses, and he describes this gospel-driven dignity, Paul does, of both older men and older women. He begins first in verses 1 through 2 with older men. Older men, as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, and that applies to older men. They're to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. I think Titus had a hard job in front of him. Because from what we learn in verses 6 through 7, Paul thinks that Titus is a younger man. Because when he addresses younger men, he uses the pronoun you. You. So he thinks Titus is a younger man. And what is this younger man supposed to do first and foremost? Tell the older men what to do. That's always easy, isn't it? A younger man looking up to an older one saying, here's how you ought to live. Timothy had that same kind of problem and a similar challenge that Paul gave to him. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1 He says, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, the older men as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. He was supposed to address them in certain ways, but nonetheless, a younger man, we're told in 1 Timothy 4.12, he's a younger man who should not allow anyone to despise his youthfulness. He has to exhort them in a certain way. So Titus and Timothy were to have a respectful confidence in what they called the church to comply with now before we go much further who who fits the category of an older man and an older woman don't raise your hands I see that 
Yep, definitely not you, my little friend. Yeah, not you. Well, how would we define that biblically? When I look at the scriptures, there's a couple of indications. You might just jot these down. We won't look into them in detail, but just jot them down. Luke 1.18, Zechariah described himself as an old man and his wife both as older people because they were beyond the years of childbearing. So he called themselves advanced in years. That's a nice way to say they were old. They were beyond the years of childbearing. Philemon 1.9, Paul called himself an old man. And from what we discern about Paul and his age, he was likely in his 60s. The Old Testament may give some indication about what comprises an older person when it provides valuations for certain offerings according to age. In Leviticus 27.7, it mentions the age of 60 as being someone who was older. 1 Timothy 5.9, in describing widows, when, it, when is a widow to be put on the list for the church to give complete care to? Well, she's not to be put on the list if she has other family members who can care for her, but if she doesn't, she's still not to be put on the list if she is not yet 60 years of age. So for some reason, the Bible kind of fixates on that age of 60. Now, who's old? Now you can raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Why would it do that? Because 60 was, generally speaking, especially in the culture of the ancient world, a time when you were beyond raising children. You're beyond raising children in the home, somewhere around 60. And some of you are thinking, oh, it's got to stop before then. It's got to be over before 60. I don't know if I can make it. But that was the general idea. That's the general sense. You're older when you have finished essentially raising the family. That's the general idea. So what would be the primary character traits that should comprise an older man if he has centered his life on the gospel. That's what's listed here. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. The word temperate is the same word used to describe the overseers in 1 Timothy 3.2 and the wives of deacons in 1 Timothy 3.11. Again, the character traits for the members are not different than the character traits for leaders. It describes a tempered approach to issues and life circumstances, not someone who is given to emotional instability. They are temperate. They're even tempered. An older man is to be known as a person who does not get easily aroused when things don't go his way. Thus, he is the next category, dignified. It means honorable, worthy of respect, serious-minded. It's used of deacons and their wives in 1 Timothy 3, 8, and 11. Because youthfulness is often marked by a sense of frivolity. Age is marked by a more serious-minded approach. We don't mean by that a life that doesn't have any joy or humor in it, but it's a life that is met with enough trial, enough disease, enough death, enough disappointment, triumphs, health, life issues, and encouragement that it just produces a more serious-minded evaluation of life that tends to happen. The more you live life, the more you see in life, it seems to downplay life as being silly, 
Have you ever noticed that? The older you get, the less silly life is. At least it should be that way. The older you get, things become much more serious. You look back on some of the issues of youthfulness and you say, do you, do you know where that's going to lead? I, all fun and games, but do you know where it's going to take you? He's dignified. There's an honorableness about him. He's also sensible. Meaning, this is a man who is marked by good sense. Experience has taught him not to fly off the handle. Life lived out in good and bad circumstances. It's produced a sense of self-control and modesty when reacting to issues. It's sensible. You see how he makes decisions and he's thoughtful, sensible, rational. An older man is also sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. It's as if Paul put all those together, the way he words them here. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. That means years of study, years of application of the word of God, years of listening, years of responding to the truth, years of informing others has produced a man who is characterized by spiritual stability in what he believes, in how he trusts God, and how he responds to life. You look at him and you see when he gets the diagnosis, he receives the bad news, he encounters another disappointment, he's steady. It's not that he's not moved and he has no emotions. No, he has those. But it's not high highs and low lows. It's a steadiness of heart that says there's an abiding trust. God is in control. I know what the scriptures say and I've seen them played out. So he's sound in faith. You trust him. He's sound in love. He's consistent in how he responds to people. He's sound in perseverance. He he isn't prone to quit. These qualities are opposite of what you will find in an older man who does not allow the gospel to control his life. What would the older years look like if self-focus rather than gospel focus was the norm. Just reverse all of these traits and you'll see it. Short-tempered rather than temperate. A disheveled life rather than a dignified one. A lack of self-controlled thinking and speaking rather than sensibility. Given to personal convictions rather than biblical convictions. Unloving rather than loving. Quitting rather than persevering. If the gospel doesn't control your life as an older man, that's where you go. But an older man who centralizes the gospel will be seen in this very dignified approach to living. They're mature in Christ. You know, older men in the church should be the easiest people in the church to get along with. They're so mature in the things of the Lord They're the easiest people to get along with. They're the most gracious. They're the most humble. They're the most stable. They're the precious saints in the church that cause others to want to be around them. They're attractive in their character because they're inviting. In fact, these older men should be inviting 
the lives of younger people into their life. They're tolerant of youthful behavior while still able to give loving and direct rebuke when it's necessary. I mean, what else would you expect from a life controlled from, by the gospel? I mean, what, what else would you think a life would look like if it was under the control of Christ? Christian maturity should produce an older man who demonstrates a stable, dignified, self-controlled life, a life of gospel-driven dignity. In fact, just to list those characteristics means that we're interacting with people like that, doesn't it? It, it just assumes that you, you don't just gravitate to the people of your same age group when the service is over. It assumes that the people that you contact and you invite over to your house are not just the people in your same stage of life, that you're interacting with people so you see these characteristics in them. Secondly, when we talk about our older members, we refer to older women also, verses three through four. It's a similar but distinct life that's portrayed here of the older women. Notice the characteristics. The older women likewise, similarly, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. They're reverent in their behavior. This is the only time in the New Testament you'll find this term and these words that are used here to describe a woman. It describes a life that is calm, stable, and dignified in their behavior. They're not rash, they're not emotional, and they're not disrespectful to other people. They're reverent in their behavior. And they're not malicious gossips. Literally, this refers to someone who is not a devil in her speech. Not an accuser. Not one who is known by how negative she speaks about others. Not negative in how she speaks about others to others. Which is what we refer to as gossip. Gossip is when you share with others something you don't really have the biblical right to share. Something perhaps you know of, but it's not your purpose and place to begin to share that with someone other than the one you know it about. Or perhaps the right people who could come to, to bear on that, the elders of the church or someone in leadership who could come along with you to perhaps confront a behavior. The gospel-centered older woman has such a control of her thoughts and how she expresses them that she can point out error and wrong in such a way that is beneficial and it's not slanderous. And she does it with the right people at the right time. Also, she is not enslaved to much wine. What would being enslaved to much wine suggest? Perhaps despair. Despair. This could reflect a woman who is in despair over life and what she hasn't achieved and heartache that she experiences and physical pains and loss of loved ones that drives her to mask over the issues of life with substance rather than faith. But a woman who is controlled by the gospel is not driven to mask over the issues that she's battling in her heart with something outside her. She knows that there's something more valuable. There's something more stable. It's a, a life that's under control, not controlled by alcohol, but under the control of the spirit. She doesn't drown her sorrows in the bottle or any other substance. She looks with anticipation to the Lord. 
She's also, it says here, teaching what is good. I think this is interesting. Older women have a teaching responsibility. Now when I, I read this and I describe it, I often hear in many local churches, and I've certainly heard it here through the years, many women come up and say, I've never had an older woman do this for me. I've never had someone come alongside and instruct me in these things practically. So I'm not even sure how to do this. Or I've heard some who say, yes, I see my stage of life, but I haven't been a Christian all that long. And so I really don't have any role to instruct others to do what I'm just kind of learning to do myself. But that isn't what the Bible says. In fact, our church and every church needs older women who will take the initiative and the responsibility to come alongside other women in the church and instruct them to teach them. Well, I don't have the gifts of teaching. It doesn't say that here. This is a responsibility, not a giftedness. This is an opportunity to instruct, to teach what is good. To take all the things that the Bible says that we should do and help another generation know how they could do them. Biblical instruction, practical application. In contrast to a disinterested isolation Right? That's, that's the opposite. If you're not teaching what is good, it could be that you're isolating because you're, you're disinterested in involving yourself with anybody else's life. No, there's an intentionality here to invest and teach and instruct in what is good. Why? Look at the text. Why are they to do that? So that they may encourage to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to and then list what the young women are to do. We'll get to that in just a moment. Can I just say what is being described here is not a world-renowned conference speaker? The Lord is not calling you and most of you to go out on the road and become and write Bible studies that everybody reads and make a lot of money. That, that is not the issue. Now, if the Lord chooses to do that, he does but the warp and woof of what happens within the life of the church is older women just seeing and taking the responsibility, not, not necessarily from a, a formal instructional standpoint, but show up at another person's home, come around them during the day, invest in them in personal and private ways, as well as teach a class at church. Do something in which you're instructing the others. It, it doesn't mean that we need to all ascribe to be and, and want to be some world-renowned teacher. Just come alongside them and encourage them. Has the idea of train, train them, help them develop. And can I, I also just notice it says encourage the young women, not chide them. Don't shame them. Shaming is not the biblical tool to use to motivate biblical behavior. Not all the time. Perhaps there are some times where you see that perhaps in the scripture, but it, it, it's not the primary tool in your hand. You're not chiding. You're not expressing short-tempered disgust. You're not demanding. You're patiently encouraging. 
You know that it's going to take time. You know that just like it took time for you to embrace the gospel and see transformation in the way you live your life, just as God has been patient with you to teach you the lessons about what it means to be a God-centered woman, patiently encourage the young women also. Now, I know every time we start talking about a laundry list of qualities, it's fine when it's the leaders and it's not you. You're like, get on those guys. But then you say, you're just discouraging us. Nobody's this perfect. I mean, I can just hear you're going to pull out Proverbs 31 in a moment. How did you know? (laughs) I can't do that and I haven't done that and I feel like a failure anyway. Well, this is not here to discourage you it's here to provide focus for you focus it's always the bible doesn't the bible always do this it it shows you here's the ideal here's what christ-centeredness looks like and you're always aware of how far short you fall of that and the devil loves to take that that gap in between what you know and what you do and discourage you with it but the spirit uses that same gap to say come with me I I gave it here so you can do it. I've given you the indwelling spirit. You can. Will it be difficult? More than likely it will. Because the sinful nature in all of us goes against these qualities, to be quite honest. Maybe you should think, older men, older women, which quality listed here do you look at and say, that is one I, I need to cultivate more? If you're a younger person in the room and you're reading this, could this comprise the prayer list for those in our church who are older and you're praying these things for these people? And maybe one step further, maybe you could take one of these qualities that you see and it's particularly visible in an older man or an older woman and go to them and express to them what you are seeing of God's grace in that quality and encourage them in it. What kind of interaction would that be? Or maybe as a younger person, you say, ah, this is, I know people like this in our church. And how often have you had them into your home? You inviting them to your home, not waiting for the older people to do it with you, you taking the initiative and and invite them over or invite yourself over to their house. Because if they're this way, they would love to have you, Right? In fact, the younger members, whether they realize it or not, the younger members in our church, they, they need this. They need older members interacting with them who have applied the Bible so consistently to their life that when you encounter them, they, they make you immediately think of godliness and Christ-centeredness. We need a generation of older people who are so inviting in the way they live their life that they make younger people want to be around them. Now, there's a second category of church members described here and how their life should fit with the gospel to really show the image of God. It's found in verses 5 through 8, and that's the younger members. The younger members. So, if you look at the older members and you sense dignity, what would you sense in the younger members? You should see priority and integrity. Those are the two words I would associate with the younger members in the description that's given here, priorities and integrity. 
Younger members are focused on what are the God-given priorities I need to live my life by and how do I do that with integrity? And again, the biblical picture described here of younger members, those who are still in the child-raising years, whether you have children or not, it's that period of life. Again, two groups of young adults are mentioned here also. Young women, he starts with in verses 4 and 5, and then the young men. Look at the seven qualities described of the young women in verses 4 through 5. The older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It might be the most controversial text in the whole book especially in light of our current culture. It hasn't been controversial for many generations, but it's controversial now because you're telling young women what they're supposed to do. And who has a right to do that? The creator does. The creator does. He knows. He designed not just men, he designed women, he designed life, the family. He knows what will best draw out true, lasting satisfaction and gospel-centeredness. A gospel-driven younger woman is someone who gives her time, attention, and emphasis to what the Scripture marks as her priorities. What the Scripture marks as her priorities. And what is that? Love her husband and her children. This is the only time in the New Testament these two terms are used. Love their husbands, one term. Love their children is a second term. What does that, what does that mean? What does that emphasize? It says here that the priority of a young woman's life is her family. That's both functional and spiritual. It is her family. Her priority is her husband and her children. And that's a good order to list them in. Her husband and then her children. Her spiritual calling through the gospel is to love her husband and her children. Now, that doesn't mean that single women are not gospel-centered or that those women who can't have children are not gospel-centered. This is talking about what is the, the norm that you see in life and the church and the norm is marriage and having children. Yes, there are exceptions. And yes, all those exceptions can be radically God-centered and gospel-centered and make an incredible uh, investment into the life of the church. And they will and should. Paul talks about the great investment of those who are single in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We won't, don't want to minimize that. This is just talking about what is the, the norm the assumption is the norm. If you are a married woman with children, then they become the priorities of your life. And by the way, that's not just Paul bringing that issue up here in Titus. That is the universal idea across the Bible. To change these priorities is to ignore the biblical witness at best or to replace them with something cultural or temporal at worst. She's to love her husband, to love her children. They're to be the priority. Also, it says she's to be sensible. It's the same quality called for the elders in chapter 1, verse 8, and the older men in chapter 2, verse 2, meaning they have good sense. They should have good sense. They, their lives are focused and sensible, marked by modesty and priority. 
not flighty, not uncontrolled, not driven by emotion, not distracted by the culture, not pulled by worldliness. When you begin to interpret life according to the word of God and the scriptures, the scriptures are showing you the lens through which to look and see life. You start responding with sensibility because you see things the way God sees them and that's sensible. She is to also be pure. That means a a life marked by chastity, morality, innocence, a life characterized by holiness and a zeal for God. It's an aversion toward what the Bible marks as sin and ungodly passions. It's a pursuit of what the Bible says represents God in his uniqueness, holiness, purity. The next is a fascinating term that usually gets a response. My email address is dalton at swbcls. He'll field all those questions. He's our newly installed staff member over parenting and children's and youth ministry. He'd love to interact with you. But God says she is to be a worker at home. That's one word in the Greek New Testament. Workers at home. It indicates that the focus of her efforts are her home. The place of priority for the display of the gospel in her life is her home. A similar but even more emphatic term is actually used to describe young widows that are encouraged to get married. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. I want the younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house. The word keep house is a very different word. I'm not confident that's the best way to describe it. It, is, it means to be the ruler of the home. To be the ruler of the home. So the Bible's not silent on this issue. It's not silent or unclear on where a woman's chief responsibility lies. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, we won't look into all of that. We've taught on this before, and you can go back and listen to what we have said before on this issue. But just suffice it to say, Paul is addressing what happens in the church, and he says, I do not permit the women in the church to take the roles of responsibility of instructing the congregation instead a woman is to focus her attention it says they'll be preserved or literally saved it's the word sozo for salvation I think it means spiritually saved eternally saved through the bearing of children and if they continue in faith love and sanctity with self-restraint now some of you just you swallowed way too hard there How is a woman saved through childbearing? Well, childbearing is simply another term that means motherhood. And I would remind you, go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. In Genesis 3, 16, because that's what Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 2, he says that the weight of the curse of sin will cause a woman to desire her husband. And what does that mean? She will desire to have his role. And what does that mean? The increase in childbearing means that she will have such an increase in the pain of childbearing, she will not want to be a mother. 
if she denies being a mother and doesn't want motherhood and wants nothing to do with motherhood, despises motherhood and just wants the role of her husband, what has she then said about her relationship to the creator who said, you are the only one who can be a mother? To say to God, I don't want this role is to say to God, I am not going to follow you, which is an issue of salvation. That's how he paints it. And it's not just motherhood, but it's all the other qualities, faith and love. If you don't have those things, they're the mark of a lack of salvation, right? This is not the only passage that addresses this. Yes, go to Proverbs 31. Read, read about the description of a godly woman. And I, I know there's a penchant to say, today to say, ah, that's, that's not talking about an actual woman. I don't, I don't think there's any reason to believe anything other than it is because Solomon was being instructed, here's how you are going to be a successful king and here's how, what you should look for and here's the kind of woman in whom you should trust yourself as, as a husband and a wife. Genesis 3 mentions it, Ephesians 5 describes it, 1 Peter 3. This is not the only place. These are passages that directly describe a woman's God-centered, gospel-centered responsibility and suggest the same priority. Now, this is not to suggest that any substantial activity outside the home is sinful for a woman. Otherwise, you probably haven't read Proverbs 31 very carefully. I will not begin to suggest that every woman who has a job outside her home is somehow living in a sinful state. The issue isn't whether you have a job outside the home or not. The issue is what is the priority? What is the priority of your life? Now, I think that issue is far more challenging to address because you could be a woman who doesn't have a job outside the home, but your family's not your priority, right? The issue is where is the priority? However a family decides to function, the biblical record is clear that the home and how it functions is to be the priority of the wife in the home. And every family is going to give an account of how you do that. And I, guess, I get it. We're in different places and someone's going to say, well, you don't. I mean, t- Titus, they didn't have this culture today with this kind of economic reality. Really? You, you, you think they were all just more well-to-do and it just was easier? And he's just addressing the ease of the first century circumstance? I don't think we understand the first century circumstance. It can be done. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it can be. And the rewards of it are going to be staggering. Here's the issue. If a woman is pursuing a priority that diminishes or replaces the home as her priority and responsibility, then it reverses the roles that God established in creation. She needs to then drive and address the motivation of her life. What what is motivating her to do something other than what God has said? If her pursuit is different than the God-designed roles of life, then perhaps something else other than the gospel is actually defining her life. She's to be a worker at home. The home is her work. She's also to be kind. That is, she has a sense of moral goodness, kindness, generosity, and love for what is excellent and upright. She's not rude. 
She's not dismissive of others who don't see life as she sees it. She's not disgusted with everyone around her. She's kind. She's generous. She doesn't quickly furl her brow when someone says something she doesn't like. She's kind. When people encounter her, they tend to smile because she's kind. She's also subject to her husband. Phrase says, subject to their own husbands. She puts her functional order under that of her husband. That's the intentional, purposeful act that she takes in relationship to her husband if she is married. Because again of Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the natural inclination is to go against the roles that God has assigned and given her uniquely and try to take on a role of her husband. No, she subjects herself to her husband. That's not a statement about self-worth or spirituality. Our self-worth is not determined by what we do in life. We are all created in the image of God. You want to talk about self-worth? Go there. Not in terms of function. If you see self-worth, it doesn't matter, man or woman, you see self-worth in terms of function, there's always someone higher than you. Right? There's always someone higher. There's always someone better than you. There's always an authority above you. That's not where we find self-worth. In terms of function, the Bible does reveal a divine functional order in the home. 1 Corinthians 11 describes that. Ephesians 5 describes it. 1 Peter 3 describes it. But submission here, ranking yourself under another, submission does not mean that a woman is a silent doormat. She has a significant voice of influence in her family. Of course she does. She's created in the image of God. Men, If you don't listen to her when she's talking and she's thinking, the the best biblical word to describe there is you're being dumb. That's not Greek, but it's uh, (laughs) biblical. I don't know the, there is a Greek word for that, but that gets me off base here. I think the the term in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when it describes a woman who rules her home says she's got significant sway in the home. And that that doesn't take away the husband's position that calls him to a higher responsibility for the overall direction of the home. It doesn't do that at all. Why should a young woman give herself to these things? Do you see what the text says? Do you see what it says in verse 5? Why should a woman do this and give herself to this so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What does that mean? She's not, she's not arranging herself in this way for any other reason than she looks into the scriptures and she says, I want my life ordered around the priorities that God has given. That's what I want. I want people to see how I cherish the word so that they will cherish the word. How I value the scriptures so they value the scriptures. There's the motivation. What she does reveals what she believes about the Bible. And does it cause others then to believe in the relevancy and the power and the transformative effect of the scriptures? Young men are described in verses 6 through 8. 
These young men described in verses 6 through 8 are called to be, here's that word again, sensible. It's the same word, as if everybody has to be this way. You have to see life the way God sees it to make decisions according to the way God has ordered things. That makes you sensible. To act in a right way, to think in a sensible way. You're not driven, young men, by emotion or circumstances, but by sensibility because you see things as God sees them. And furthermore, in all things, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Think about that. Young men are not to be passed over. They're to be examined. Young men are to stand as if they are the examples in society and the church and the culture as being God-centered. The way they think, the way they live their life, the priorities that drive them. They're examples. Their children look to them. Children of other families see young men and they say, that's what we should be like. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. You're given over to those things that highlight the grandeur of God, the kindness of God, the generosity of God. That's the very challenge to young men who are most tempted for their actions to be self-indulgent rather than self-sacrificial. Are your efforts the sort that the children in this congregation could look to and say, that's a model for me to be like? That's a model for me to be like. That's the kind of father and husband that I would want to be like. That's the kind of individual, hard-working, clear-thinking individual. Or, young men, is your life an easy one to dismiss as adding nothing of spiritual substance because it's marked more by silliness rather than goodness? Are you showing your children how to be focused and obedient to God, an example of maturity or immaturity, neglect or responsibility, indulgence, self-entertainment, or sober-mindedness? Furthermore, these young men should be an example with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is above reproach. The assumption is that these young men will be teachers, they will be instructors in the church, and what they say is not undone by the way they live. How they live their lives is directly tied to what they're teaching others from the word of God. There's a gospel-driven priority and integrity to a young man's life that makes him an example and doesn't leave him a condemned hypocrite. Why is that so important? We'll look at the passage again. Why is it important to live this way? Verse 8, so that the opponent, that is the opponent of the gospel, the one standing and resisting what you're teaching, so the opponent will be put to shame because what you say and how you live undoes what the rest of the world advocates. The opponent is put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. You advocate one thing, but you can't live up to it. Now you live consistently with it. Again, this is not a state of perfection, but it is an obvious state of direction of life. The very testimony of the church among unbelievers rests among how our young men live their life in front of the rest of the world. Isn't that amazing? What a responsibility. Your life could actually affect the entire congregation's testimony. So it needs to fit with what you say you believe. 
The third and final category that we find here of a gospel-centered life and membership is what I refer to as the working members. Paul describes the slaves, bond slaves, those who are slaves in society, to be subject to their own masters in everything. Slavery was the chief way in which most people, if, if, if probably was the vast majority of people, especially on the island of Crete, actually had a way to provide for their families because they didn't have perhaps unique skills and abilities and trades in which they could just go off and, and make a living for themselves. It's a very different world than what we know here. And sometimes people would, would give themselves over as slaves to masters so they could provide for their families. So the, the clear, distinct way in which we could see that in this day is in the, the work world. But we do need to make a comment here about slavery. Christianity does not make men slaves of one another. Christianity actually spiritually liberates those who, who believe from the tyranny of sin. It doesn't call men to be enslaved to each other in the way that we think of slavery. But it also, if you were to find yourself in a culture as a slave, it does mean you could live Christianity out no matter what status or stage you found yourself in. It brings social change. Christianity does. It brings social change through living and proclaiming the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul is calling for here. Slaves live in such a way that you would change the hearts of your masters. You could transform society through the gospel if you would live in this state and transform their lives because of what they see in you. I don't think the Bible argues for the application of slavery and we should seek to see those created in God's image treated as if they actually bear the image of God. But notice the text, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters, to rank themselves other, under their masters in everything. You recognize where you are and you, you rank yourself under. <clears throat> I hear this with employees all the time. My, my boss is an idiot. Has no idea of the best way to do this. Doesn't know the right thing to do. I see this better and more clearly. Yeah, please express that and then tell them that you go to a different church, all right? Not this one. Because you're, you're taking a role and you're responding in such a way that doesn't reflect the biblical priority or a biblical mindset or heart. The, the employee, the slave is not focused on his own personal plight, but on how he can bless the one who is above him. Not taking for himself, but giving to his master, driven by good faith. Notice, be subject in everything. Be well-pleasing to where they look at you and say, you are, you are pleasant to be around. You're not an argumentative person always resisting what you're asked to do. You're not pilfering, you're not stealing and stuffing away trying to stick the old man with it. You're showing all good faith. You're showing all good faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. So that they, the masters, will adorn the doctrine of God. It means you live in such a way that it's very clear the gospel runs your life. And your masters look at that and say, that, that isn't like anybody else. That's not like anyone else. Could a secular master actually advocate for the gospel and 
a gospel kind of living because they see it in the lives of the people they employ and who work under them. As we finish this up, do you see this is how we're to live as members in the church? In such a way that fits with our faith. I just, as we close, Paul didn't say anything about worship services. When he talked about church, he didn't say anything about worship services. He had everything to say about a kind of people who live a kind of way. And, and here's the focus, and should be the focus of our church. In what way are we helping each other live this way? We're called to make disciples. Disciple making is not just a one-time event where you get someone to pray the prayer and they become Christians. Discipleship is this constant work where we're helping each other live according to the word of God. How are we discipling each other? Every generation investing in each other. When you have, go to a women's group, do you just go through the motions of reading the book and all the things that you do? Or do you actually begin to talk about how can we cultivate in each other these kinds of character qualities? When you're in a men's discipleship group, are you just getting through the material or are you talking about the personal issues of life and how to cultivate these kinds of qualities? When you're interacting with each other, are you pointing out, I see this in your life, it encourages me. It's caused me to think differently about my life because I see it in you and I want you to know that. What is the interaction like? What is the discipleship like? And you say, well, I've, I've kind of approached people and they just don't want to get this personal. Well, approach again. Or someone's very very kind of short and they're not going to talk about life and they, they don't want to talk about those details, press in again. There's a need. We have to be open to receive it. We have to be eager to invest this kind of ministry in one another. And when people ask me all the time, what kind of ministry could I get involved in the church? I just want to say Titus 2 is that. Ministry means building into each other a life that looks like the gospel. And there could be a thousand different ways to do that. And we should all be thinking, all right, how am I doing that with others in my life? The people that God providentially has put around me, the, the, the natural circles of influence, the relationships that seem to be right there. How am I doing that with those people that God has put around me? That's ministry. If we're not doing that ministry, but we're really eager in all kinds of other projects and services with badges and names and titles then we haven't done the real ministry that makes us a gospel-centered church. And if you're looking for a church, you're looking for a church that's not just saying the right things from a pulpit, but a people who are eager to use them among themselves and create a certain kind of character. This is, this is what being reformed into the image of God looks like because of Jesus and the work he does. And listen, this is not any work you can do outside the Christian faith. You will not be able to achieve, do, exhort, walk in these characteristics if you are not in Christ. In fact, your heart will take you somewhere else and you'll look very different and you won't want this and you'll want something different and you won't, you won't desire to live this way. 
But in Christ, I think those in Christ, they taste these characteristics and they want more of that. In fact, I think most of in our world, they taste these things and they say, why can't we do this? Which is a great way to put the gospel on display, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, we pray for each other that we will live like this, that we will consider where we are, what should change, that we would look back and see that by your grace there has been change and you are reforming us and you are calling us to look like our Savior. Thank you, Father, for that work among us. I'm so grateful, Lord, for this congregation that pursues on the whole a life like this, prizes these kinds of character traits. Lord, I pray it would continue to characterize our interactions with each other, that we enjoy one another and we enjoy one another because we are cultivating the work of the gospel with each other. Lord, I pray that there would be an openness for us to, for us to confess areas of weakness to each other. I pray there would be an openness to and an intentionality to express the evidences of your grace where we see these qualities in each other. And Lord, would you do that work in us that shows the gospel clearly, that shows us to be the body of Christ so that people could see and know what Christ is all about and the power and the transforming work of the gospel. And we pray we'll live this way until you return. We'll live this way in anticipation of your coming to be found in you because we look like the character of our Savior. We pray for this help and anticipate its result among us in Christ's name. Amen.